0: DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints and the Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host. Chris McGregor. Welcome,
1: Omar. Thanks, Chris. Good to be back.
0: We're discussing Chapter 8, The Political Community. And probably one of the most important elements of that is the information that we're provided. We're in an information overload (laughs) age. I mean, here we are providing information. (laughs) That's right. But we'd like to consider that what we're offering is not just information, but catechesis.
1: Yeah. yeah. The, you know, one of the first things the Holy Father, Pope Francis, did after he became Pope is he, is he had a meeting with all the reporters, and, and he said, you know, our vocation's pretty much the same. Both of us, the reporters and the Pope, are responsible for communicating the truth, right, the word. And that, I think, is an aspect of looking at the media we don't often think about. We we think of the media as, you know, providing us with entertainment, certainly, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the occasional, you know, important uh, news about a disaster or something like that. But in terms of communicating. Truth and, and as Catholics as Christians, we believe truth is a person, right? Commuting into us a person, the person of truth. That's that's responsibility of the media. That's pretty. That's a that's a big paradigm shift, I think. Now, for the, for the democracy, for the American, for the for as as we are contemplating the sense of the political community, the role of the media becomes even more important, because if the democracy is based on having a a, a, a people a citizenry that's well informed, right, and virtuous then the, the people who are charged with a vocation to provide us with information, uh, they have a, a very important role in how well our democracy lives up to the, the larger call to foster the common good and protect the weak. Um, so it's important then that the media does what it's supposed to do. And at the heart of it, of course, is the, the media itself has to have a sense of what's right and wrong.
0: When we talk about media, I think we really have to address how important – that influence can be on us as individuals, but also as a collected group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I mean, media back in the time of St. Paul was standing on a corner or in the mm-hmm. square or wherever it was that rhetoric was proclaimed, that, that transmitting a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, down through the centuries, tracts would be disseminated. And because it was on a written word, you'd be surprised at the number of people would say, well, because it's on paper, it must be true. <laughs> and that type of political discourse, its ability to be able to influence that, is tremendous. I mean, we even look to the, the propaganda that would be put out from places, whether it's in France mm-hmm. or it's in England or it's even in the United States. Mm-hmm. It, you have to be very discerning when processing that information, don't you?
1: You do. And I think one of the first things you, you do when you begin to, to try to, to process that is, is this media that I'm taking in, is this uh, providing me with more fear? Uh, is, this, is this making me more anxious? Right? Is this leading me towards a, a deeper trust in God or in a fraternity? We talked about in the last episode the sense of fraternity and the, and the sense of gratuitousness, the logic of gift. Are the stories the media telling me? Are they? Do they make me trust my fellow man, right, or, or want to reach out to him, or do they make me mistrust him and suspect him and want to be away from him? And again, is this bringing me fear? When the media does that, and sadly, it does a lot of that, uh, it's not serving the common good. It's not serving the public well, even if they think they're just simply passing on the truth.
0: It has become so polarizing, particularly in the United States and maybe throughout the rest of the world, that at a time you would watch, say, an evening newscast back when I was young, in the 60s and the 70s, and there was the word trusted. This Mm. is a trusted resource, and you would hear it. But then a cynicism has really developed in the fact that what we're hearing potentially probably has a bit of a bias from one one side to the other and that is something again that someone discerning what's being said what's the motivation it needs to be a part of how we take that in
1: yeah Uh, and with the advent of the internet uh, really we can go find whomever we want to find the bias we want to be reaffirmed in our own biases and 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 that's the great digital, you know, St. Paul in his letter to Timothy has this wonderful line um, that I always go back to, and he has this line where he says, you know, know, there will come a time when people will go uh, looking for those teachers with itching ears, that's the phrase he uses, St. Paul, with itching ears that go find those teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And boy, do we do that. And there are so many ways for us to find those between different cable news networks on the internet, different sites and and news uh, articles and, and and authors in particular, we, we tend to seek out those who are simply going to reaffirm what we want to believe in the first place, right? And that's a danger, and that's part of the discernment process because as we seek to inform ourselves or allow ourselves to be informed by the media, we have to realize that while there can be a bias, I mean, everybody, in a sense, it brings a certain bias to uh, to their reporting, um, we want to make sure that that bias is rooted right in that transformation in Christ and not in a political ideology.
0: We also have to be aware that not just news organizations or news outlets are influential in helping us to develop our discernment on issues. Mm-hmm. It, it, I can think back to the 1800s where uh, a young woman, mother who wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin was mm-hmm. able to influence what we would say now very rightly so a nation so much so that in many many ways it changed the heart of the nation in its response to slavery by giving it a very important human element. But then also we could look at what happened with film in the 1930s in Germany Mm -hmm. to fuel a fervor for a type of political ideology thought that would end up having horrifically disastrous effects. So, In that discernment, Omar, wouldn't you say that in the media you have to look at all the elements and be very, very careful and use virtue as your guide.
1: You have to use virtue as your guide and you have to realize that, that again, we go back to this question of participation we talked about in the last uh, episode. Participation doesn't just mean raising a good family. It doesn't just mean you know, voting and, and running for office, it also means being involved in media. You just mentioned film. You mentioned literature, you know, Uncle, Uncle Tom's Cabin. There was a time in the United States, and, and uh, you know, there have been plenty of people smarter than me who are trying to rack their brains to why it's no longer the case. There was a time when some of the leading uh, writers, right, and, and and thinkers and poets in America were all Catholics, right? You think of the great mm-hmm. Catholic literary tradition here in the United States, especially from the southern United States, mm-hmm. with Flannery mm-hmm. and Connor and others, that's a form of participation in the political community that we really need because mm-hmm. more and more what this, this fracturing of the media does is it atomizes. In other words, it, it, it separates us. Everybody can go off into their own little corner, their own little sort of niche. But, if, but there are certain kinds of media now that really can unite us. Film is one of them. Film is one of the most powerful forms of media. You can still say to a lot of people in America, have you seen that movie, right? And, and people will still know what you're talking about maybe not so much with books, maybe not so much with an article on the Internet, but with a film, Um, we can really say that it unites us as Americans uh, in a way that other forms of media don't. Um, It's not right or wrong, it's just just the case. So having Catholics involved in media, um, not to to have this sort of ham-fisted communication of of, uh, the Catholic worldview, but just to communicate truth and virtue, I was thinking uh, earlier today, that beautiful film, Life is Beautiful.
0: Mm.
1: It's a film that really just sort of strengthens the human heart. And, and that film ended, ended up winning uh, several Oscars because even in in sort of the, the hard-hearted, uh, vicious, I'm judging Hollywood right now, but terrible waters that, that they swim in, even they understood that this was an important film that, that talked about the importance and the goodness of, of life, even in the midst of suffering, life is is beautiful.
0: This isn't just a, a conversation about the arts. This is a conversation about politics. And the arts, uh, we, we have to go back because you can see how the arts can be used to affect politics. Precisely right.
1: And, and we see that the, the politics, right, is not just about the machinations in Washington, D.C., but about our culture, about our society, right? The, the, the word politics comes from the Greek word for polis, and the polis is a community, right? It's about our community and all those things that affect our community, not just about public policy or laws.
0: Talk to us about the priority of civil society.
1: Right. The the, the companion is going to say that the priority here is about that that community. It's not about the structures themselves. It's about the community, right? The, The state exists to serve the people, not the other way around. So sometimes we get caught up when we think about a political community in terms of this, you know, who's in charge or what party's in charge or whether or not you know, we should be able to elect our senators directly or have the state <laughs> legislatures do that, right? The amendment in the Constitution that, that changed that. We get too caught up sometimes in the structures. Uh, rather, we need to understand and focus more on what's, what, what's going on for the side, the priority of the civil society. And so the, the companion is going to say the state must provide an adequate legal framework for social subjects to engage freely in the different activities and must be ready to intervene when necessary with respect for the principle of subsidiarity the priority of the civil society is going to require that we are very clear on the principle of subsidiarity. Why? Because what happens is, is the state has a tendency, as we said in the last episode, the tendency to try to usurp power, certainly from God, right, but also usurp power from the people, to, to try to lord over the people, not to be its servant, right, to be its master. And just as an example, for instance, when we look at um, King David, in the Old Testament, we know the whole story about Bathsheba and, and, and Uriah and, and the great sin there and Nathan saying, hey, that man is you, you've, you've done this terrible sin. But there was another time that God was very angry at David. And that other time was when David decided to have a census. Right? And his advisor said, there's no reason for a census. Why are you having a census? But David insisted, no, I want to have a census. And when he had the census, God was so angry at David, he punished David and sent a pestilence upon the people. Why was God angry at David for this? Because what's the purpose of a census? The census counts how many people you have to send to war. It counts how many people you have to put to work. It counts how much money they have that you can tax. It counts how much stuff they have that you can take. The only purpose of a census is for the king, for the state, for the government to lord its power over you. It violates the principle of subsidiarity, and God is not happy when that happens. We see this in uh, in the in the scriptures, and so likewise, the principle of subsidiarity has to take take the take uh, take the four. So in the compendium, it's going to talk about the 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 role of the state, uh, the role of the market, right, the economic role, which you talked about in those chapters in economics, but also the role of what what the the compendium calls the third sector, and the third sector is is us, right? The third sector is our parish, the Rotary Club, the various communities, the uh, the, the city council of of, of uh, uh, women voters, or whatever it might be. Uh, those groups of people who get together in, in our civil communities, right, to help bring about the common good, protecting those groups, those intermediary groups or the third sector, separate from the economy, the market, and the state, is very important for a healthy society uh, because it's, it's there that we encounter the weak directly.
0: Mm. A very important topic that we need to address, particularly in the United States, but this also has ramifications around the rest of the world. Is religious freedom? Mm. Help us to understand the the issue.
1: Well, uh, the first thing that needs to be said is that religious freedom is a fundamental right of the human person. Um, it simply is. Now, there are those who don't agree with the Second Vatican Council on this, and that could be another episode some other day. But um, but it is a fundamental right of the human person, and as such, it has to be protected by not just the general feeling of, of society, but it should be something protected by the law, um, just like any other fundamental right. It should be protected by the law. Um, and why? Because uh, the question of, of who we are as human beings uh, can only fully be answered in relation to God. We believe as Catholic Christians that um, that inner desire that for truth, that inner desire even just to be a better version of ourselves, uh, the inner desire for peace, which is a universal feeling and desire, uh, that can only be achieved uh, when we have a right relationship with God uh, and when our consciences are free to pursue that right relationship with God. And so if, if we are allowed then, if, if, we're, rather, if we're not allowed, if our, if our government comes in and demands that our, our consciences be sacrificed um, in order to live up to a standard the state requires, uh, then it, it's getting in the way of our being able to achieve the common good. And so the religious liberty has to be protected.
0: It's something that so many thought was a given, again, particularly in the United States, that we had this particular freedom. But the erosion of those freedoms is what seems to be of paramount concern in this present day.
1: Yes. And um, what's happening now is, you know, when we started the last episode and we talked about the Old Testament, I said the, the theme that keeps coming up with the Old Testament is uh, the danger, the, the need to be wary of the state that tries to uh, usurp the role of God. And that seems to be happening now. Um, what the state, uh, especially in the United States, is trying to do is increasingly take the role of uh, God outside of the public square and to replace that role with its, with its own systems. And in the case of the HHS mandate, uh, which is part of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, it's, it's literally coming forward. In other words, what the state is arguing is when a Catholic is motivated, driven, really, to serve the poor because of their belief in Jesus Christ, you can no longer consider that a religious activity. That is rather an activity, which is to be meted out and recognized and done by the state, and the state alone. The, the, the moment we try to insert uh, some sort of religious recognition into the work we do for the sake of the poor, or in education, or in healing the sick, or whatever it is we're doing, uh, that's when, some, for some reason, the state is now coming in and saying, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, and that's the great danger. And there are a number of cases. There's the HHS mandate is, is just the most egregious and most recent case. But there are other cases. There's a case of a... Of a young girl in Texas, for instance, who was actually threatened with jail by a local judge should she mention the name of Jesus at her valedictory speech, graduating from high school. It's gotten to that point now. That ruling was overturned by another judge, and she was allow- allowed to, to to have her own private prayer, et cetera. But this this constant drumbeat of of, of removing God from the public square, that's the violation of religious freedom, and that's the the very kind of thing of the Old Testament and the scriptures that Jesus warned us against.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, Omar, that in that particular case, there would be those who consider themselves atheists who come forward and say, "This I feel violated by this particular action, by someone inserting their religious belief, but the very nature of their atheism appears to have the same nature as, an, as a religious action. And therefore, it's almost as though their religious action is trumping what we hope to be able to proclaim.
1: Right. At, at the very beginning, in I mean, our last episode, we talked about uh, you know, how the compendium says the, the foundation for a, a civil society is not rights and, and, and duties, but rather this, this fraternity. Right, And, and the reason I said we said that before was because when you start talking about rights, when, you start, when the starting point is rights, then the state exists to only protect me from other people, right? Um, because the 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 idea is it fosters the idea that somebody else's exercise of their right is an imposition on my on, on my right, and that's exactly the argument these atheists are using. Your uh, uh, exercise of your right to pray in public, right, forces me to either participate in your prayer or put up with your prayer or listen to your prayer or to acknowledge your god or whatever it might be. It makes or Something as simple as it just makes me uncomfortable, right? My right not to be discomforted by you. Um, that's how far we've come.
0: But in essence, what's happening is our comfort's now being violated because we're not allowed to express ourselves. So it becomes more of a battle of comforts.
1: <laughs> right, exactly right. Oh. And that's the problem with this rights language which is why we don't want, we don't want civil society simply founded on this notion of rights and, and duties because it, it, got, it comes to this kind of ridiculousness, a ridiculous uh, battle of comfort.
0: Where are we today, then, as far as our understanding of what authentic religious freedom is, and we'll use in our particular instance in the United States?
1: Um, Well, where we are is is, uh, we need to um, uh, take back this notion, uh, right, that uh, the, the separation between church and state does not require the church be quiet. Um, even take something, for instance, as, uh, as this law, which hasn't been around for very long, technically, that bars a, a pastor, for instance, from referring to political issues from the pulpit. Um, um, in, in years past, uh, it would never have been thought possible that the leader of a community, the spiritual leader of a community, could not bring up the fact that a particular candidate, for instance, advocates for the murder of children. Why, why would a pastor not be allowed to bring something like that 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 to the attention of the people in the pew? Um, it wasn't until, uh, uh, actually it was Lyndon Baines Johnson, um, before he became president, who passed laws barring pastors from making those kinds of comments from the pulpit because of his experience in, in Texas. We've gotten so comfortable with that idea now uh, that we think nothing of, arguing with a priest who dares to bring up some political issue at the pulpit. We've become comfortable, increasingly, with uh, wanting to make sure that the the pastor keeps his own faith private. Um, I I had a a priest friend of mine tell me that he was at a restaurant once waiting to pick up some food he had ordered. He was sitting there, he decided to take a moment to open up his breviary and and, uh, look at the prayer. Perhaps he was reading the Office of Readings, who knows. And somebody walked by him and slapped his bravery and said, keep that in the rectory, Father. We've become way too comfortable in our, in our culture uh, with relegating religion to the sphere of the private, uh, as though any sort of expression outside of one's own little private room or one's church is an imposition on other people. Uh, it's a deeply cultural problem we face. we're facing. Uh, and for that very reason, I think it's all that much more important for Catholics to realize uh, that part of being part of a political community and part of participation, the principle of participation, is to try to take back that sense of being publicly Catholic. Uh, in my parish and in several parishes where, where we live, every summer we have a Corpus Christi procession. Uh, and this year it was attended by around 1,200 people who walk through the streets, uh, led by Jesus Christ in the in the monstrance, while we were singing, and while we were uh, laying out rose petals before him, cetera, so that we could publicly say, no, we're Catholic, and that means something to us, and to do so publicly. This is not an in-your-face sort of thing. It's not to condemn anybody. It's not a judgment on anybody else, but simply a a public statement of who we are, because who we are as Catholics affects what we bring into the public sphere. And as we said last time, we're bringing ourselves, all of ourselves, when we participate in the political community?
0: No, implied with religious freedom then would be that all religions would have freedom and that there has to be that element of trust in truth as it has been transmitted to us to allow others to be able to enter into a dialogue at the very least and trust that if by our actions and living out the virtues and living out the gospel in all of its, in, in all its uh, various aspects, that Christ will triumph. And not to be afraid in even allowing others to be able to say things, as long as we all have the freedom to be able to say that in a morally honest and virtuous way.
1: Yeah and I think you know the presumption by some people is the, the fear that maybe the the Catholic argument is that we're we're advocating for we're arguing for a Catholic uh, theocracy and that's not that's not what we're asking for Pope Leo XIII the great Pope Leo XIII who started social teaching he's going to say that the only thing the church asks for right is the freedom to be who the church is and to do what the church does that's really all we're asking for um and we are confident that given that basic freedom to do what the church does and be who the church is, um, that, that you know, Christ will win the day, that we'll get converts, that we, we'll be allowed right, to, to bring as many people into the faith as we, we know want to be in the faith, uh, because Christ wants them there too. Um, so nobody should take this as, a, as an argument for a theocracy, but rather it's just the, the request that we be allowed to be who we are. Uh, the the end of this chapter, paragraph 426, the compendium says the church has the right to the legal recognition of her proper identity, just to, to be who she is. Uh, and that's going to require uh, things like having religious buildings and, and and transferring our own ministers and the freedom to organize as we wish, but also right, the freedom to form associations for educational purposes, cultural purposes, health care, and charitable purposes, being able to serve the poor, uh, being able to 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 build on Catholic culture, that's part of the freedom we're asking for.
0: So much more can be contained in this particular discussion. I wish we had more time. Any final thoughts in this area?
1: We covered a lot, and I think there's a lot to challenge our our listeners with. But, you know, this is appearing on discerning hearts for a reason. I think the question is simply just to, to ask our listeners to discern how God is asking them to participate in their political community. Is it to be the next great film uh, writer, or is it simply to raise good, virtuous children right, so they can better affect society? Is it to make sure that you, you know who it is you're voting for, or is it all of the above? Right, That discernment has to happen in the sacramental life and your prayer life, because if you're not rooted there, it doesn't matter how many films you write or how many kids you raise or how many—all that stuff doesn't matter, uh, because it won't be connected to, to the truth. To Jesus Christ, and and that's where healthy societies come from.
0: Important to remember what Pope John Paul said on that day on the Loggia, that he was an echoing mm. our Lord Jesus Christ. Be not afraid. Amen. Be not afraid. And when he spoke those words, it was at a time when the world was very fearful. Yeah. There was a Cold War going on, and so many other things uh, plaguing the hearts of human beings. It hasn't changed that much. Those That same plague continues to affect us, doesn't it, Omar?
1: It does. Uh, and that's why we have to be uh, wary of, of those things that cause anxiety. Be not afraid. And he also said, open wide the doors of your heart to Christ Jesus. Do that. Do that, and and we'll make it through.
0: Thank you so much, Omar. My pleasure, You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching, With Deacon Omar Gutierrez To hear and or to download This conversation Along with hundreds of other Spiritual formation programs Visit discerninghearts.com This has been a production Of Discerning Hearts I'm your host Chris McGregor We hope that if this has been helpful For you that you will first Pray for our mission And if you feel us worthy Consider a charitable donation To help support our efforts But most of all We hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.